and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 122, The Fall of the Samurai, part 6. So I'm back. I survived my PhD exams. Thank you all very much for your forbearance, and especially thank you to those of you who sent me messages of encouragement. I can't say how much I appreciate it. Before we get started, just one quick announcement. As you may or may not be aware, the podcast does have a merchandise store that you can access both via the WordPress page and via Facebook. We've got some new designs up there, and if you're interested, you should definitely take a look. I know I'll be getting the podcasting samurai mug. Take a look yourself, see if there's anything you might find interesting. So today, we're going to turn our attention back to the primary political narrative where we last left it off. To give you a quick recap, which you probably need after two weeks, in 1858, U.S. Consul General Townsend Harris succeeded in pressuring the Tokugawa government to agree to a substantially more far-reaching treaty with the United States, the very innocuous-sounding Treaty of Amity and Commerce between the United States and Japan. Despite the name, the treaty was far from friendly. It contained several deeply insulting provisions, the forced opening of more treaty ports to American ships, denying Japanese officials the right to control tariffs on imported foreign goods, making it impossible to protect Japanese industries from Western competition, and extraterritoriality, which made American residents in Japan legally immune from Japanese law. Harris was able to secure these concessions by suggesting that if the Japanese did not accept them, the British and French would send over massive fleets to extract far worse terms at gunpoint. However, in point of fact, the terms of the Harris Treaty were not substantially better, or indeed substantially different, than the Gunpoint Treaty of Tianjin forced on the Chinese at the end of the Aero War in 1860. Perhaps the most objectionable part of the whole treaty was the inclusion of what is called Most Favored Nation Status. This probably sounds pretty unimportant by comparison to the whole part where somebody is just immune from Japanese law altogether, but here's the thing, it's not very sexy, but it's really important. You see, a country with most favored nation status gets special treatment. Anytime one country gets a particular concession, a most favored nation automatically gets it too. So let's say, hypothetically that the treaty between the U.S. and Japan limited the Americans to selling 100 pounds of textiles in Japan every year, but then the British came along and forced the Japanese to sign a new treaty, allowing them to sell 200 pounds of textiles every year. As a most favored nation, the U.S. would automatically get that same raise to a 200 pound per year limit of textiles. This made it nearly impossible for the Japanese to negotiate their way out of the unequal treaties, at least at this point. You see, when faced with multiple different negotiating partners, the traditional thing to do is to try and play them off against each other, to make them compete against each other to offer you the best deal, rather than letting them gang up on you. The Japanese, however, couldn't do it because there was no incentive for the Western powers to compete against each other. Any deal one of them got, the others all got too, so it was in their best interest to beat up on the Japanese as much as possible. So you can see why these treaties would be very unpopular with the Japanese. They were not only insulting, but hugely damaging to the ability of the Bakufu to manage the country, both internally and externally. 
However, the head of the Bakufu's Council of Elders, or Roju, named Hota Masayoshi, felt that he had no choice but to agree to the terms. The Bakufu simply was not prepared for an armed confrontation with the United States and had to agree to something, anything, in order to buy time to prepare for a future date when Japanese sovereignty could be reasserted. So, Hata signed the treaty and sent out letters to the great lords, or daimyo, of Japan, explaining why he'd done what he had. The reaction, however, was not quite what he hoped. In some quarters, the response was grudging acceptance of the treaty. Sure, it wasn't great, but it could have been much worse. In particular, the Fudai Daimyo, or Inner Daimyo, those houses closely allied to and with a vested interest in the Tokugawa system, accepted the treaty with limited grumbling. Remember, these Fudai families are the ones who pledged loyalty to the Tokugawa house before the first shogun, Tokugawa Ieyasu, ascended to power. Thus, they were considered more trustworthy by the Bakufu. They also tended to generally support the Bakufu in the majority of policy decisions, since most Fudai daimyo had fairly small domains, and consequently the only thing that gave them real power was privileged access to postings in the central government. Among many Shimpan and Tozama daimyo, however, the primary response was outright disgust and hostility. Tozama daimyo were lords who had not pledged loyalty to the Tokugawa until after the point of no return, when the Tokugawa had clearly become the most powerful clan in Japan. As a result, these families were denied access to postings in the Bakufu government, and so had no real stake in the central government. They also tended to be wealthier, even domains like Choshu that had lost 50% or more of their wealth after the rise of the Tokugawa, still had pretty substantial holdings. So they had no inclination to listen to the central government and the resources to go their own way. The Shimpan daimyo, meanwhile, represented what you could call the extended Tokugawa royal family. As with every other royal family in history, they were of flexible loyalty to their regal cousins, since, after all, each one of them was just a few well-timed deaths or falls from grace from the position of a shogun itself. In particular, five very vocal critics of the treaty emerged, though we're only going to focus closely on two. The first was the Tozama lord of Satsuma domain in southern Kyushu, and one of the very few daimyo in our story who actually accomplished something of note, Shimazu Nariakira. Shimazu Nariakira was a well-known reformist who, among other things, took a profound interest in Western technology. He even had a daguerreotyping machine imported from the West and sat for a portrait, making him one of the first figures in Japanese history who we actually have a picture of. The second was a Shimpan daimyo, the lord of Mito, Tokugawa Nariaki. Yes, Nariakira and Nariaki, I know it's a bit confusing, which is why I'm going to use their full names whenever I refer to them. Tokugawa Nariaki was from Mito, which you might remember was the home of that troublemaking school of historians who had started writing history from an emperor-centric perspective. In recent decades, the Mito school had also become increasingly anti-foreign. For example, as the foreign crisis started to become more of an issue in the 1820s, one of the leading Mito scholars named Aizawa Seishisai produced a work called The New Theses, in which he argued that Japan had to unconditionally resist 
a predatory West that was out to subvert Japan via a combination of weaponry, economy-destroying unequal trade, and Christianity, which would naturally make Japanese more sympathetic to Western ideas. Tokugawa Nariaki was very much influenced by the ideas of the Mito school, and believed fervently that if the West was given even a small foothold on Japan proper, then it would proceed to divide and conquer the country, manipulating the Japanese via a combination of greed for trade and cultural contamination with Christianity. Way back in 1853, when Abe Masahiro had first asked for advice about what to do with this guy Commodore Perry, Nariaki had come down hard on the side of war immediately to get these people off Japanese soil. We still have his letter of advice, and it takes a firm stance. The foreigners were, quote, arrogant and discourteous, their actions an outrage, end quote. The only way to avoid subjugation at the hands of the foreigners was to go for broke, unite the whole country, and go to war against the barbaric West. Quote, if we put our trust in war, the country's morale will be increased, and even if we sustain an initial defeat, we will in the end expel the foreigner. Well, if we put our trust in peace, even though things may seem tranquil for a time, the morale of the country will be greatly lowered, and we will in the end come to complete collapse. Tokugawa Nariaki also suggested that if the shogunate compromised with the West in any way, the lords could lose confidence in the Bakufu government. That loss of confidence had the potential to totally undermine Bakufu rule. That is not only a courageous statement, at the time that was borderline sedition. So when the Bakufu not only agreed to Perry's treaty, but then agreed to a second treaty with the American Harris, Tokugawa Nariaki was incensed. He seems to have genuinely believed that Hota Masayoshi, the Roju, and the whole Bakufu government were selling out Japan and the Tokugawa dynasty out of some weak need of fear of going to war with the West. This is not entirely fair, obviously. Hota had a very clear policy that was driven by realism, not by fear. He, and most of the other Roju, felt that trying to oppose the Tokugawa out of some sense of pride would have simply destroyed the country and led to national collapse. Instead, Hota Masayoshi said, quote, Our policy should be to stake everything on the present opportunity, that is, to trade with the West, to conclude friendly alliances, to send ships to foreign countries everywhere and conduct trade, to copy the foreigners where they are at their best, and so repair our own shortcomings, to foster our national strength and complete our armaments, and so gradually subjugate the foreigners to our influence, until in the end all the countries of the world know the blessings of perfect tranquility, and our hegemony is acknowledged throughout the globe. End quote. So Hota Masayoshi was not some weak-willed sycophant of the West, and was incidentally learning the basics of Western imperialism from the West itself. When Townsend Harris himself said that he was engaged in, quote, teaching the elements of political economy to the Japanese, end quote, he probably was not referring to Hata Masayoshi's grand plan for a Japanese empire, but he may have been more right than he knew. Still, while Bakufu policy was clearly not motivated by fear, but rather a rational cost-benefit analysis, that did not dissuade Tokugawa Nariaki and his allies from attacking the Bakufu as having sold out Japanese interests. 
Tokugawa Nariaki and his allies came together in 1858 to do whatever they could to dissuade the Bakufu from agreeing to Townsend Harris's treaty. At first, they confined their efforts to lobbying the Bakufu directly, both for rejection of the treaty and for a degree of political reform which would grant individual daimyo more power, and thus, in their minds, give individual daimyo more freedom to concentrate on preparing to defend against the foreigner. Shimazu Nariakira, in particular, put together a very interesting reform proposal that was eventually forwarded to the Bakufu. He suggested that the formal structure of the central government be amended to include a sort of grand council of all daimyo, with the shogun acting as president of the council. By involving all daimyo in this council, so the theory went, they would all have a stake in the outcome of national policy. Thus, they would be more committed to executing those policies and defending the interests of all of Japan, rather than just their corner of it. Certain lords would be given unique monopolies over areas of personal specialty. Shimazu Nariakira would continue, for example, to manage the relationship with Okinawa himself, while the lord of Hizen, Nabeshima Naomasa, would manage the nation's foreign policy as a sort of foreign minister, Hizen being where Nagasaki was located, meaning that Nabishima himself already had practice dealing with foreigners. This whole idea is interesting because it's very reminiscent of theories of representative government in the West. In other words, the idea that giving people national power gives them a stake in the fate of the nation. As far as I know, though, none of that theory had been translated at this point. This is simply something Shimazu Nariakira cooked up himself. As far as I know, this is the first time that the idea of a sort of Senate of Daimyo would be proposed. It will not be the last. This notion of taking all the Daimyo and using them as a basis for representative government will come up several more times down the line, and as we'll see, it represents a very real alternative path the Meiji Restoration could have gone down had things played out only slightly differently. Now, one point that is worth discussing is that it's easy to dismiss Tokugawa Nariaki or Shimazu Nariakira and their allies as being just xenophobes who objected to all things Western, but that's not really accurate. We've already noted that Shimazu Nariakira had an interest in things like camera technology, and Tokugawa Nariaki was also extremely interested in Western technology. In one of his crazier proposals, Tokugawa Nariaki even suggested that he himself should be sent to America, along with a cadre of disposable samurai, younger sons, who were in his words, quote, always unwanted, in order to manage trade rather than letting foreigners reside in Japan. Tokugawa Nariaki even founded one of the earliest domain-funded schools for the study of Western technology in his home province in 1841. So it's better not to think of him as a xenophobe, but a committed moralist who genuinely believed that caving into the foreigners at gunpoint would undermine Japanese prestige in a really fatal way. Still, while Tokugawa Nariaki may not have been a xenophobe himself, he did make one very important contribution to the xenophobic cause in Japan. Hanging above the doorway to that school of foreign technology that he opened, was a placard in Tokugawa Nariaki's own excellent calligraphy with four characters that would become famous over the course of the next few years. Sono Joi, 
which loosely translated means honor the emperor, expel the barbarians. That phrase has a long history in East Asia. It first appears in the Spring and Autumn Annals, a Chinese history from 2,500 years ago, which was supposedly edited by Confucius himself. In Chinese Confucian thought, the phrase, rendered Zunwang Rongyi, was shorthand for the ideal behavior of a loyal subject. A good subject reveres his leader and defends the community against outsiders. This was the essence of Tokugawa Nariaki's thought. His whole approach to politics revolved around revering his leader, the shogun, and protecting the community of Japan from its enemies. That phrase, sonojoi, is going to become increasingly important to us as it comes to encapsulate the ideas of the more radical wing of political agitators who are going to emerge in the coming years. So, in 1858, the Bakufu was just not prepared to think seriously about giving that much power to average daimyo or ripping up the Harris Treaty. Shimazu Nariakira was thanked for his advice, and his suggestion was promptly thrown away. So the two sides remained at a standoff until a new political crisis tipped things in a new direction. As had been the case in 1853, the catalyst was a succession crisis. The 13th Tokugawa shogun, Tokugawa Iesada, had always been physically weak and sickly, and in August 1858, he succumbed to disease, most likely cholera, as an epidemic of it was sweeping through Edo at the time. Yet again, a new shogun was needed, and Iesada had died childless, meaning that the new candidate had to come from one of the Shimpan families, the Tokugawa relatives. The competition quickly was whittled down to two candidates. The first was the young cousin of the former shogun, Tokugawa Yoshitomi, the daimyo of Kishu, who was at the time merely 12 years old. The second was Tokugawa Nariaki's seventh son, Nariaki himself being too old for this kind of thing, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, a smart, dedicated, and driven young man who, at 20 years old, was just entering the peak of his life. Yet again, the great lords of the country split. The Fudai lords tended to back young Tokugawa Yoshitomi. At 12 years old, he was young and pliant and could easily be guided by his advisors in the Bakufu. Tozama and a good chunk of the Shimpan families, however, tended to back the older, more independent Tokugawa Yoshinobu, who, both because he was older and because he was related to Tokugawa Nariaki, they thought would better represent their interests. The succession dispute turned into a total deadlock, and it was this deadlock that forced Hota Masayoshi to make a fateful decision. Without a shogun to formally approve the Harris Treaty, he instead asked the imperial court to offer its approval. Hota Masayoshi expected this to be a simple rubber stamp. After all, the court really didn't know anything about foreign policy, so it would just agree to whatever the Bakufu told it. However, Shimazu Nariakira had a different idea in mind. He reached out to the court as well and urged the emperor to reject the treaty rather than accepting it. Shimazu Nariakira was able to do this because of long-standing connections between the Shimazu clan and the imperial court. The Shimazu had for centuries now arranged a series of marriages that bound them closely 
with one of the oldest aristocratic families in Kyoto, the Konoe. And yes, that's the same Konoe family that would, a few generations down the line, produced the inept Prime Minister Konoe Fumimaro, who did the lion's share of the work bungling Japan into war with China and the United States. These kind of family connections between samurai and imperial court officials were not uncommon. For example, the Yamauchi family of Tosa also had long-standing marriage ties to another aristocratic family in Kyoto, the Sanjo. The reasoning for these aristocratic and samurai marriages was, for the samurai, twofold. First, marriage into the venerable clans of the imperial court was a source of a certain amount of prestige for samurai clans, especially for newer families like the Yamauchi, but also for more venerable and older clans like the Shimazu. Second, samurai-to-samurai marriages were tightly regulated by the Bakufu because of the fear that such marriages could be used to cement alliances between the daimyo that could become powerful enough to overthrow the shogun. Marriages to the Kyoto aristocracy were not regulated to the same degree. After all, what were the aristocrats in Kyoto going to do, protest policy by flower arranging? On the aristocratic side, meanwhile, marriages into samurai families provided political relevance and, more importantly, ties to wealthy samurai clans. Even the wealthiest aristocrat in Kyoto had a stipend barely comparable with the lowest of the daimyo, and many of them had to work jobs as tutors in poetry, calligraphy, or flower arranging just to make ends meet. But why work for an honest living when you can marry into a family of samurai in exchange for a small consideration now and then? So, using this marriage connection, Shimazu Nariakira reached out to the imperial court as part of a group of five daimyo. Tokugawa Nariaki, the lord of Tosa, Yamauchi Toyoshige, Date Munenari, the daimyo of Sendai Domain, and a Shimpan Tokugawa relative named Matsudaira Yoshinaga, all began lobbying the imperial court to reject the treaty and to pressure the Bakufu into appointing Tokugawa Yoshinobu as shogun. This coalition found support among several prominent families in Kyoto, and two men in particular were drawn to it. The first was the eldest son of the noble Sanjo family, with close ties to the Yamauchi, Sanjo Sanitomi. The second was a noble and imperial chamberlain, Iwakura Tomomi. Both of these men are going to be very important to us down the line. Once Hota Masayoshi found out that getting his treaty approved would not be a simple rubber stamp, he wasted no time trying to assemble his own group of nobles to lobby the emperor to support the treaty with the Americans. He never proved as successful as his opponents, though. Simply put, his appeal to rational politics and common sense lacked the emotional hook of the opposition, which argued in terms of defending the imperial land of Japan from uncouth foreign barbarians. To put it another way, the faction arguing to reject the treaty benefited from the fact that the politics of being a firebrand always tend to be more popular than the politics of mature, realistic compromise. At the center of this political storm was the Emperor Komei, a mere 28 years old at the time, though already father to a five-year-old child named Mutsuhito, who we will be spending a lot of time with when he takes on his regnal title as the Emperor Meiji. Kome was, by inclination, a private man uninterested in politics. He had been raised in the intense ritual world of Kyoto, 
where a meticulous ritual calendar designated 180 days of elaborate ceremonies per year, in other words, basically every other day. His training was in calligraphy, ceremony, and flower arranging. He was not a politician, nor did he know much about political issues. As a result, he was easily swayed by his advisors. From what we can guess, he was generally sympathetic to the anti-treaty faction in his personal beliefs, and believed that the Tokugawa should take a more active role in opposing foreign predation. However, he also seems to have been content with Tokugawa leadership. He does not seem to have been seriously interested in stripping all power from the Tokugawa shoguns, merely in pushing them towards what he thought had to be done. In the end, Komei came down in favor of the anti-treaty faction, and sent a message to Hota Masayoshi saying that the Harris Treaty should be thrown out the window. The original language of the message also included an endorsement of Tokugawa Yoshinobu's candidacy for Shogun. However, that line was edited out of the final version that was sent to Edo by proponents in the imperial court of the younger candidate, Tokugawa Yoshitomi. Totally disgraced by this imperial rebuke, Hota Masayoshi resigned in disgrace in September 1858. He would retire to his ancestral home in Sakura Domain, resigning all titles in favor of his eldest son, and lived out his remaining years in his home castle before dying in 1864. Before his final resignation, however, Hota did manage to secure one big win for his side. He arranged to end the debate on succession by installing Tokugawa Yoshitomi, the younger candidate felt to be more pliant to the wishes of Fudai Daimyo. Yoshitomi would change his name to Tokugawa Iemochi, the name by which he is known to history, though don't worry, he won't be coming up that much. Now, Hota Masayoshi's replacement as head of the Council of Elders, or Roju, was far more tough-minded than he was. I Naosuke was the daimyo of Hikone on the shores of Lake Biwa, not far from Kyoto. He was his father's 14th son, and had originally been expected to live a life of obscurity. His father had actually packed him off to a Buddhist monastery, specifically to get him out of the line of succession. However, a combination of disease and accidents cleared out the elder brothers ahead of him, and he was eventually recalled from the monastery and made heir to Hikone Domain. A mature leader at 42 at the time of his accession to the leadership, E was thoroughly associated with the pro-Bakufu clique by the time of his rise to leadership. He had advocated both for accepting the Perry Treaty and accepting the Harris Treaty, and using both to play for time to rebuild the strength of the Bakufu. E Naosuke also hated the meddling Tokugawa Nariaki and Shimazu Nariakira, both for violating what he considered to be the traditional rules of government in meddling in national affairs, and for, in his eyes, their crazy ideas about trying to start a war with the West that Japan clearly was not prepared for. It would end no better, and probably far worse, than China's wars against the West. Inosuke was convinced of both the righteousness of his cause and the foolishness of his enemies, and furthermore believed that the politicking surrounding Japan's future had done serious damage to the security of the country by undermining the prestige of the Tokugawa. His first move was to take advantage of the final act of Hota Masayoshi and going to the pliant young shogun Tokugawa Iemochi, 
he requested a new title that had fallen out of use decades before, Tyro. The Tyro was the chief of the Roju, or Council of Elders. The term itself literally means Great Elder. Remember, normally the Roju worked together in consultation. There would be one person acting as leader, but that person still had to consult with the other Roju. It's not a perfect analogy, but you can think of it as similar to the position of Speaker of the House in the United States, a sort of first-among-equals type of role. A Tyro, however, had substantially more power. They basically dictated terms to the other Roju and acted as a sort of second shogun, answerable only to the head of the Tokugawa house. The position had so much power that it had actually fallen out of use. In the previous 150 years, only three Tyro had been appointed. The job was usually only handed out in cases where a quick or energetic response was felt to be necessary. Inosuke was able to convince the young shogun to hand him this incredible authority, and next week we'll see what he's going to do with it. Inosuke would direct a sweeping reassertion of the authority of the Tokugawa government and the roju, one which would leave his political opponents powerless and enemies of the Tokugawa questioning whether it would ever be possible to successfully oppose his will. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for The Fall of the Samurai, Part 7. Thank you.